0: Welcome to the Interlocutor Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Nessler, the founder of Interlocutor Magazine, which features in-depth coverage of creators, thinkers, performers, and artists of all types. You can check us out at interlocutorinterviews.com, and if you would like to support our efforts for high-quality arts and, and culture coverage, you can do so via Patreon. Just click on the Patreon link on the site. So today, I would like to introduce our guest, Stephen Montgomery. Uh, Born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, Stephen describes himself as having an affinity for the aesthetics of damage, destruction, or any evidence of the passage of time. His earthenware creations pay homage to the once thriving industrial capital, its degradation and subsequent resurgence, incorporating elements that honor the regality of Detroit's auto industry and its machinery, and recognize its more recent issues with the safety of its water supply. Montgomery creates vessels that look more like futuristic Bronze Age sculptures and pottery. And Stephen currently has a new sculpture series called Toxic Con, which addresses the serious issue of the health of the world's water supply via the, the Flint water crisis. Um, he also had works featured in the Earth and Delights group show uh, back in 2021 at New York's C24 Gallery, which displayed his Euclidean series. Uh, consisting of small scale and intricately crafted earthenware pieces that were in contrast to many of the larger scale works that he's known for, uh so with that all said, Stephen, welcome.
1: Hi, Tyler. Thank uh, you.
0: Happy to have you here um so I just wanted to start off by um going back to your origins uh on your website, you have a, a, a cool little video that kind of is a little biographical. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do a, a quote from that. You'd said that as a kid on uh, Detroit's Northwest side, rust and junk and industrial debris were commonplace and a charred carcass of an abandoned car blocking a side street really wasn't much of a surprise. Some of my earliest creative actions were making models of cars, planes, ships, stuff like that. Uh, I would take them into the backyard and set up elaborate battle scenes with army men crossing stick bridges and airplanes crashed into dirt. Um, occasionally you, uh, would also douse them with lighter fluid and drop a match into it. Um, and you said parents and neighbors were not amused. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so actions like that got you in a lot of trouble, but have since proven to be, you know, significant in the development of your, your, your mindset as an artist. So, that's a really interesting foundation for sure. Um, and, and so with with all of that said, where would you say your mindset is at now? I mean, do you, do you, do you still kind of have this sense of, of wanting to embody decay, destruction, ruined industrialism, so on? I mean, is the current things in the world – the current situation in the world, kind of maybe even bolstering this foundational mindset?
1: It's been pretty consistent throughout. And I would also wanted to say that the video that you're referencing was made uh, in 2016 for an exhibition at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, the Renwick Gallery. And it gave me sort of an opportunity to sort of go back and reflect and put some thoughts together. And so that video is actually quite recent, but the the impulses that are implied there have been with me probably since day one, yeah. and I am not looking to change that reference point at any point soon. My appetite for destruction is pretty, pretty uh, <laughs> always present. That said, I'm happy with a pristine object that go undisturbed periodically. But so I kind of, uh, I give myself the opportunity whenever possible to interact, usually in a fairly aggressive way, uh, and break things. So that that <laughs> appetite is, is is quite strong.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, I mean that's still really evident in your work for sure. And um I want to mention that I published an interview with you in the Interlocutor magazine back in uh I believe I believe it was in May of 2021 and that focused on your Euclidean series that I that I mentioned that was at C24 in the, in the group show. Um and so just to, to describe what these are the, the, the these were kind of like very small intricate machine-like earthenware pieces that were glazed in in gold luster. Um, with some of the services were also covered in a dark textured blue and I'd written it almost like radioactive looking, uh, was it cyan? Uh, you said then that, um, the pandemic, um, basically forced you to to reduce the scale of your work because you were running out of clay due to supply chain issues. And so I should mention that like most of your work is pretty large scale, right? Uh, to date. I mean, overall I would, (laughs) Is that is that correct? Uh,
1: yes, it has been certainly my my uh, my general direction is. I'm thrilled by the by the drama in the theater of large scale, like many artists certainly are. Um, that said, the pandemic uh, had that particularly unique quiet time, and because I was out of materials um i gave myself the opportunity to try something i had never done before which was to get something to have produce something that was on a more intimate scale that's where right. the small the small came from um originally they began as cups i know it's a bit of a stretch having seen them because they don't really suggest utility but they do have a vessel right and a kind of an appendage on them that's supposed to imply the same relationship that a handle would have to a cup so i do refer to them as cups even still, even though they've gotten even so far away from anything regarding utility right. that it 's almost an obfuscation of their of their of their truth um, they are as 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 uh, as mechanical as anything that i've made um, they're, it's a series that is still active and uh, is going all kinds of interesting places, but they are becoming even less cup like as I go, but i 'm trying to keep that small intimate scale part of their part of their direction
0: right. You also, in that show, though, you did have kind of more traditional uh, uh, ceramic, like I think you had, like, you had, like, uh, saucers or?
1: Uh, That might be the only cup and saucer I've
0: ever made in my life. Um, (laughs) Okay. uh,
1: David Terry responded to it and said, bring it over.
0: And did you consider that part of the same series or was that different? No.
1: That was just sort of an, we'll call that an outlier.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, So... You, um, it's interesting because you said that you, uh, you kind of had, uh, an addiction to monumental, uh, you know, scale. Um, and now it looks like, especially with the, the Toxicon series, you, you've kind of relapsed <laughs> back into Well, the, actually they were happening simultaneously. I got you. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's, right. it's
1: interesting in the studio to go from one scale to the other, sometimes in the same day. So I'm kind of, you know, literally back and forth from one group to the other, they're happening in parallel.
0: Now, when you, I, it, so it was, it was though a shifting of gears for you to to work at a smaller scale. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah.
1: I'm still moderately traumatized by the smallness.
0: <laughs> but, you know, what I was wondering is, did you, what did you get out of that? Do you feel like having to, like, sort of being pushed into working at a smaller scale, um, changed your approach to working in general, even, even at a larger scale in terms of thinking about the intricacies of, of the pieces or just sort of the workflow of, of creating them?
1: Um, I will admit that the the jury is still out on that in particular um, is because I'm still involved in the large scale. There's a dialogue happening in the studio and also in my head between the two. So one kind of informs the other. You know, the big ones might scream at the small ones and tell them to shut up. You're too small to even be in my world. The small ones will then <laughs> scream at the big ones and say, shut up, you big, you know, piece yeah. of shit. So that said, it's a, it's a fascinating approach. And I'd also do – there's other work in progress too. So I'm happy having a multitasking kind of a day. Right. Um, I will work on as many as four or five things in one day. So it's literally like a little symphonic operation in there on any given day.
0: You know I love that because uh so the 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 last interview that I did, the podcast interview that I did with artist Ryan Sarah Murphy and she was talking about her studio as well and I this is probably true for a lot of artists um who were you know working on multiple projects at once this strange kind of communication that's happening between all the different pieces right. you know and the kind of uh um at least in, in her case uh sounded almost like they took a life of their own and were sort of like no i don't want to be in this piece move this <laughs> move me into this other piece you know and and uh, it was this sort of almost like communion that she was having with the pieces. And so, um, I don't know. It's uh, do, you, do you have any sense of that when you're working in the studio and you have multiple pieces at once and the, you're just sort of feeling like maybe one part wants to move to another part or anything like that? or
1: uh, Actually, parts is exactly what my approach is, particularly to ceramic. Because mm-hmm. I basically make things, particularly the large work, is made in parts and then assembled using epoxies, oil paint, right. uh, metal reinforcement, all kinds of things that are really not part of the traditional approach at all. So for me, the kiln is not the end or the defining factor in any given work, as it might be with conventional ceramic. It's right. the middle of my process. So I make parts and then fire them. Even okay. the cups, some of them are made in parts as well. Uh, so it's just simply has been my approach to sculpture for a long time, is that I'm assembling post-kiln.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I think that that comments too on just the themes of your work, right? Because you're, you're, it, it is a sort of a almost an industrial or mechanized way of approaching your taking individual parts and assembling right. them. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, so I wanted to uh quote from our our uh, interview in the magazine. You'd said that you know each piece is a, a, a composite. This is basically what you kind of discovered: sure. individually cast, carved, wheel thrown, or hand built components. Dry primarily, and in the case of that series of the Euclidean series, the toy automobile engines, particularly carburetors, and each piece uh, is carefully composed to avoid referencing any specific device. Um, and so this could include overlaying suggestions of, uh, mechanization as well as engineering, architecture, microtechnologies. Um, but what really jumped out at me with, um, with this comment, is you said, even while obsessed with the aesthetics of these areas, I readily admit to having no working understanding of any of them. And that's the beauty of art. And so what I was wondering is, you know, would you say that in some ways you've, you've intentionally avoided uh, a fuller kind of working understanding of these technologies and either consciously or unconsciously as a way to uh, better focus just on the pure aesthetics of the machinery and the engineering. I mean, what a deeper understanding of the way that, that they work as machines, you know, as the, as the actual functional objects, almost get in the way of the process for you?
1: Well, it's a good question. It's one that has been asked many, many times, is is for me it's all about the aesthetics. That said, I do pay careful attention to the industrial landscape. I look very carefully at the operations of factories, how motors work. So that said, I've never been tempted – to train myself, I've gotten a real practical application for that. For me, it's about borrowing bits and pieces from those different areas. So this is the beauty of clay is that I can readily make that statement is what I am not as opposed to what I am. That's actually pretty important, I think. Um, uh, and I, I, I have no aspiration whatsoever, whatsoever for actual expertise. Yeah. Um, a lot of artists might claim an affinity or a background in mechanics that then feeds their work. For me, it's all a big lie. And Clay is beautiful in this regard is that I can make up – I can make up any persona that I want and leap into that a little bit in an attempt to sort of engage the viewer. So of say I might be this or I might be that. In truth, it's all a bunch of crap. I'm none of them.
0: (laughs) Okay. And, and, and how do you why do you find that empowering though in the sense of uh, as an artist
1: it's a good question so um, for many years now my uh, the bulk of my career has been has been about the aesthetic of trompe l'oeil which is called which is trick of the eye uh-huh. it's a common phrase has a more of a more of a reference to the painting world uh, over art history but uh, for me that trick that sort of leap into illusion it's again it's an aesthetic that's really more carefully associated with with painting um is I love that trick and I love that lie. I love that. Can I can I actually convince you for a second this thing might be real? So a pleasure would yeah. be to have someone come into the gallery and go, are these real? And so for a second there, before they actually read the information nearby that indicates there's a ceramic, there's a little void in there. That's where I think my work really lives. In that place of is this thing actually from the real world or not? Yeah. Of course, if you're a real motorhead or, or a mechanic or engineer, you know this was these were these were nonsense objects to begin with. That said, there's a little little sense of a little time frame in there by which I think I've got you. And that's where yeah. that's where my experience is really, really, really <laughs> pleasurable.
0: I love it. And I just love people, you know, questioning, is this real? Because what does that even mean, really? It's like, I mean, I'm they're, you know, basically saying, is this functional? Is this something that, like, is this a little engine that works or a little circuitry that works somehow? And that's what they mean by real, but real... You know they're real in the sense they're they're, they're real objects. They're you know, but they're aesthetic. They're purely aesthetic but the, that are commenting on functionality.
1: I'm right? still having an argument with the plumber in my studio building. He's <laughs> for the building, not for us directly, but he is absolutely convinced that the plumbing extruding out of the wall in the Toxicon series is part of the original sprinkler system of the building. And I've said, no, they're clay. He's, <laughs> he, will not, he refuses to believe this. He thinks I'm, I'm playing games with him. So it's a, it's a fascinating sort of back and forth that he still doesn't believe it.
0: That's, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I had an experience <laughs> some years ago. I had an experience some years ago. This is another layer of – of illusion where uh, I was sitting in the gallery and uh, this would have been an OK Harris where I showed for many, many years. And uh, a group of elderly, very plucky gallery goers came in (laughs) and there was no one around except me with my hoodie on sitting in a corner and they assumed I was no one. And they're looking and they're reading the information that says ceramic and they're clearly not buying it. And while they thought no one was watching, they then proceeded to knock on them as hard as possible, Ooh. and even the sound was <laughs> not really resonating for them that these are not metal, so they still weren't buying it. I thought I should have stopped them and said it was so much it was so interesting, and they were having such a good time. I let them rap away,
0: yeah, <laughs> well, it became an interactive <laughs> art experience for them oh <laughs> uh, yeah that's wonderful, um yeah, these elements of trickery uh you know it's kind of I don't know you know you think of like uh stage magicians almost or illusionists you know like that's just what came to my mind sure, to sure, sure. and the way you're doing this uh you know it's kind of that same approach um just you know uh presented in a different way
1: There is a a history of some – not many ceramic artists who have also used um, a trompe l'oeil effect Mm -hmm. to particular uh, uh, – particularly, you know, very, very well. Uh, One artist in particular showed at the same gallery I did for many years. Her name was Marilyn Levine and she made leather goods basically. And they were so convincing. You had the same experience of are these real? So you kind of – you experience them in a very, very different kind of a way. It's not a – It's not a popular approach in ceramic at all. It requires a very high skill set. Uh, so, but there are a few people out there making, you know, clothing, everything from clothing to, you know, other kinds of objects. There's a few actual, a few other metal replicators who have come up over the years. Some of them are actually former students. Um, and some of us are in touch via Instagram, whatever. But there's now a little bit of a, the industrial aesthetic is not uniquely my own territory as I thought it was many years ago. (laughs) There's a few others out there and they're all, they're all making interesting trompolay objects
0: nice well you know i i wanted to touch on um your drawings cuz i noticed on on your site you have you have a series of drawings and i want to touch on this briefly and then we okay. can also circle back to it but um I, I some of them resemble blueprints right like like these incredibly like almost fantastically intricate kind of schematic blueprint like depictions of like just impossibly complex machinery right. and so uh, when I was looking at these, I was wondering, you know, are, are these representative at all of your early stages for your pieces? Like, for instance, do you, do you map out – well, it doesn't sound like it because you said you assemble using different pieces because I was wondering maybe do you do any kind of blueprints or schematic drawings, uh, you know, with these ideas in terms of how you want to – Eventually, Are you working off any kind of blueprints is what I'm getting it's, at.
1: It's a good question, Tyler, and I appreciate that question because it it, it, uh, it does go to the heart of some aspect of my process that, again, is not terribly logical. <laughs> um, I do not work from a plan of really much of any kind. I just have yeah. to begin building. Uh, those drawings in particular – are from a residency, a really extraordinary residency that I did uh, called the Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship. Okay. Um, and it's that it was in uh, 2012 to 14. And for a couple of years, I had access to the full database of the Smithsonian museums. And I had a little office in the Air and Space Museum in D.C. Um, I was given access to blueprints like those, which I believe, as I recall, were from um, – how do we put it this way? I think they were from the early installation of the original layout of the, of the of the Air and Space Museum in DC, and I was allowed to photograph them, which I did. Then made prints from the photographs. Then in Photoshop, got and just played with them. So they're not they're not my hand is not in there in the conventional drawing way. There's other drawings on that site that are you know are 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 legitimately hand drawn. Right. Those in particular were an extension of my of my research at, at the Smithsonian.
0: Okay. All right. Interesting. So then the, yeah. So these, the, these like blueprint, the, these are basically just like you took the uh, pre-existing blueprints correct, correct. and then just like really like I, tweaked them. Right. Yeah. Cause they, they look like, uh, like something like a madman. <laughs> you know, right, like this, right. this is my, this is my incredible invention. You know, it's like, um, like they're, 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 your eye is really drawn into them because they're so complex, right. but they look like, like also chaotic? Like there's a, a kind of organized chaos to them, which I which I, I think in many
1: cases they're layered, and we, yeah. I, me and my assistant did spend a lot of time playing with them and, and seeing what configurations worked and which ones didn't. Um, that said, my intention was to uh, blow them up, you know, to print them out on very large scales and color them in, or there were all kinds of grand plans for them, which kind of didn't really come about. But that said, my relationship with drawing is such that I usually use it as an escape valve rather than an identity or a planning mechanism for works in progress so right. in many cases the drawings don't have anything to do with with the rest of my creative wor- world it's a sort of a it's a i get off on tangents and, and uh, tangents on paper have been great fun yeah. there was another smithsonian tangent that involved burning paper a little bit closer to what my sculptural approach is but uh so in general yeah tangents are they're drawing tangents come and go periodically they're not a they're not a they're not a consistent or certainly a, a, a rational part of my practice.
0: Okay, yeah, and like I said, I want to circle back to some of those drawings because some of them really jumped out at me as so different um, from the rest of sure. your work that I've seen. But I want to get now into you know what is your your. Basically, your newest series or what your main focus is right now, would you say, is uh, the Toxicon?
1: Uh, Toxicon is—I'm going to say—is as I said earlier—is—is pretty—is is half of what my focus is at the at the moment. The okay. uh, the, right. the Euclidean group is also in progress, and as I said before, all at the same time. So I literally have one in the kiln while I'm working on another. I might make a mark or a splash on something and go back to the other. So um, I don't think that they necessarily belong in the same room together. But that said, um, you there's. there's there's, uh, there, there's still so much both part of my consciousness right now that I feel if I if I go off in one direction, I've abandoned an, a child or something. So I will come back and and, and <laughs> right. give them all due diligence over the course of – so I kind of literally go back and forth.
0: Okay. All right. Well, so the Talks are called in series and uh, I want to mention that I'm going to put up a page for this podcast on the Interlocutor site. Um, it'll have a link to uh, the interview that we did for the magazine. It's also going to, I'll also embed images, um, specifically from Toxicons. Since we're going to, we're going to talk a lot about it in the next couple minutes. Um, so people can have a reference and then also we'll link to your site so they can check out your other, uh, series and the drawings that we're talking about and everything else. Um, but so for Toxicons, so these are really striking, um, they they center on depictions basically of faucets dripping like this almost gelatinous like oozing, multicolored like very toxic, but also beautifully kind of colored you know liquid, um, that a lot of times isn't even isn't even re, isn't even done like dropping out of the the you know the faucet into the basin or wherever it's going to fall, um, it's just sort of suspended. And so first I wanted to ask you about the scale. Um, most of them look quite large. For example, um, your piece, uh, that's called Subsequent Descent. You have a woman standing beside it, um, in a photo for, just for scale and and it looks enormous. Um, but I wasn't able to tell from the rest of the images what the scale is for the rest of the pieces. Are they all large or is there a variation?
1: There's a variation, but the the, um, the piece you're referring to is approximately 7 feet. So, yeah. again, with the, from the photography angle, it kind of makes it look like it's 10 feet. Now, also because it's hung up in the air or up on the wall at about a level of 10 feet, it literally takes up about a 10-foot space. So it's right. of occupying a sculptural area that's bigger than the actual size of the object. If that makes sense so, so so yeah. seven feet is probably the largest scale. I think there's one that's also about eight feet, but they're generally no bigger than that okay um, they're they're probably about as big as I think I need to get uh, That said I uh, there are some smaller ones. there's one that's probably as small as say thirty inches. And there's several sort of in between those scales. So they're they're all in differing stages of viscosity. They they look as though they could drop at any minute. And that's a big part of what the experience is about is sort of observing, you know, the speed at which they might actually be moving. I do envision them actually having a, a, a real kind of a time frame about them, even though that's an illusion as well. Right, um, but the the sizes vary. I, I of course can easily envision one at thirty foot scale hanging off the side of a uh, of, of, hanging in a in a, in a uh, lobby of a of a of any building. <laughs> so then, anyway, that's just in the back of my head. We haven't quite gotten there yet.
0: Yeah, well, you know about the photos themselves. I'm looking at your site right now. Um, you have the uh, you have. Well, first of all, I wanted to ask you about the photos. So the, these. They're lit and shot really well. Um, do you have, did you take these photos, or th- were they professionally done? Or
1: uh, I took the ones of the the biggest pieces because okay. my photo skills are really really limited. I do have a good camera that I really don't know how to use particularly well, so I can do I can do a little bit with it, and then I, I usually send it off for post production for somebody to clean up the walls and clean up the floor or whatever. So gotcha. Um, so the the lighting is accurate. Uh, The photography is is most often than not for that particular series is mine, Uh, but there's a little bit of a collaboration there because there's some post-production on the walls.
0: I'm also noticing uh, your piece uh, uh, in the photos titled Detail of Basin Breach Number 1, and it looks like there's a cloth hanging over one of the faucets. Now is that actually a cloth or am I looking at more ceramics?
1: It's more ceramic tile, of course. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm all I'm all about that illusion. So the way yeah. that's the way well, that's that, that done. just that just
0: underscores it even more to me because looking at this photo at least, it looks like there's just a dirty cloth in the Which
1: is exactly what it was supposed to look like. Wonderful. That particular piece was a way to bring this particular series into the realm of the domestic, even though it's a little bit larger than a domestic faucet. Right. Um, it's also the only one in the group I think it might be one or two others, but that said it's the – one of the only ones that's freestanding. And as a result, in my opinion, um still has some work to go on. It doesn't quite sit properly. The wall ones work particularly well because they're suggesting that there is actual infrastructure on the other side of the wall that's related to this 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 desperately um heinous fluid that's coming out of there. So they're almost installation objects in the sense that they take in the environment. Uh, putting them in free space Uh, Just takes on a different context.
0: Right. So (laughs) this kind of goes back to you said your your plumber in your studio (laughs) is just absolutely convinced it's connected. Uh, And I can see why, you know, uh, these wall pieces. um, And then that's also got to freak this guy out a lot because it's like, well, what is coming out? (laughs) The the pipes in this building. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that said – Let's get into the thematic. Like, first of all, what was the, you know, so this is a commentary on the Flint water crisis and generally a, a crumbling sure. infrastructure in this country overall sure. and water quality. Um, and so could you kind of touch on like, so this, I, I, I saw pieces going back, I think, as far as 2017, then you have some up until last year. Um, and so back in 2017, um, or whenever you started these, uh, what was what was the impetus? What, what what really? I mean,
1: so the impetus literally was the Flint water crisis, mm-hmm. and images online, which are readily available anywhere, of 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 black fracking fluid and other other nasty stuff coming out of faucets were really compelling. Now, yeah. being from Detroit, Flint was kind of like the little brother town up the road. So I was kind of really very very taken by the entire episode, which is obviously still going on. And there, of course, there are org- there are examples of. Of um of you know of of tainted water supplies in many many cities all over the country. Right. Uh, the most recent one in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm sure everyone has heard that story. Yeah. Uh, so it's a it's a really really serious issue. is the health of the world's water supply. Is is going to be the next major issue that the that that the that human population is going to have to deal with. And it's actually, it's already here. It's being talked about. It's not being acted on quickly enough, in my opinion. Uh, but it's a very compelling narrative that is going to be on everyone's mind even more as the situation gets increasingly worse. So, but I was just taken by literally the imagery of, of, you know, of, of, the fluids themselves, and then began experimenting with something I'd never seen before. And ceramic was the depiction of, of liquid, so it was sort of like, well, gee, how do you do that? You know, so it was a lot of trial and error. Um, and of course, the the the, the larger drips uh, would be technically impossible. The way you're seeing them, certainly, you know, in, in real in real time, um, they would break right in the middle if there was just clay there. This is mm-hmm. a little technical tangent we're about to get off on. So there's steel running through the entire length of that drip going up into the wall and hanging onto a wall cleat. So oh, wow. it's the only way that would be possible to have that thin area there is to have it reinforced. So yeah. even though they're made by hand, they're actually made on the potter's wheel, there's a there's a, there's a a lot of internal engineering going on there um, that makes them physically possible possible
0: yeah and you know you have even uh like more intricate smaller drips like for instance i'm looking at this piece red basin lateral breach which has this almost like kinetic flow to it um, with the liquid that's dripping out like it, it's in it's in sections it looks like it was like the photo that i'm looking at it looks like it captured it captured it in a moment of, of flow like what what did it what did it take to make that, that particular drip? I mean, it took so a, a, a lot
1: of observation. For instance, um, it got to a point where I was so preoccupied with studying liquids that when I pour tea, when I pour honey into my tea, <laughs> I watch how it flows. I yeah. watch the speed at which it flows. I watch how it actually settles into the teacup. If I'm washing my hands in the faucet, I watch to see how the water's coming out of the tap. So I literally became sort of a really a careful, careful, crown, you know, a almost obsessed observer of how water and how liquids pour uh, if i made epoxy in my studio i like that viscosity so yeah. i literally was studying this stuff so i'm really just replicating what i had been seeing now that's a smaller piece that you're looking at tyler but the there's actually metal on the inside of that as well there's no way these things that's would be possible yeah. with that even though it's super thin there's a little steel rod going through the entire length of it
0: wow interesting well, and also I can say that I'm never going to look at flowing liquids, you know, <laughs> myself now, <laughs> you know, it's funny. You just, you just don't even like if, if you're so hyper-focused on it because you're trying to replicate sure. it. Um, but the, the, the massive variations in the way that li the, in the viscosity of the liquids or whatever their compounds are is going to influence the way that they drip and accumulate. There's so many variations to that.
1: Uh, and the colors in particular mm-hmm. are suggestive of of, tox, of toxicity, right. which is where the title mm-hmm. of the group comes from. So they, one color might suggest gasoline, one color might suggest uh, copper, all the sort of conventional or certainly the most popular uh, toxins that we have in water supplies today. Uh, there's a-, there's a <laughs> the qu- po- Popular toxin. Exactly. You, <laughs> we can, you can quote me on that, Tyler. That's a good one. Um, anyway, there's also the suggestion of a reflective element there yeah. that's got kind of a mercury lead kind of an implication. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's also part of their stuff too that's a luster glaze as well, a platinum luster glaze
0: interesting yeah and then you also have this one cru- uh, crucible spill which is the real focus is on the spill on the accumulation of of the material <laughs>
1: I'm sorry, Charlie. I had to look at your computer from there to remember that one. Um, so that would have been early in the series before the I that was before, the earliest, yeah, before the drips actually began. <laughs> it was literally well, whatever container I could come up with that had a drip or a, or or something pouring out of it. Right. That's really literally where they began. After about a year or two, when the first drip began, then I was kind of I was off to the races. But it was a year or two of experimenting. That would have been an early, I'll call it, experimental piece.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Um, so there is like a, a, a line of political and social commentary through a lot of your work. And so I wanted to get into some of the other series briefly. Um, for instance, uh, the arms Arm- armaments series that you have, um, which are to me, this is definite like military, industrial sure. complex commentary. Sure. You've got pieces with titles like, which is this one I love, uh, two bombers copulate procreate. <laughs> <laughs> and then also you have uh, those Felix, the cat is on the side of uh, the, uh, the, the short it's a, I was looking at a photo that's uh, titled uh detail of advanced short range air to air missile. But then there's a, like a stencil of Felix, the cat with a bomb. Um, and so, you know, they're there. I wanted to get into humor because you have there, there, there is certainly humor present in, in some of these series. And especially the one that I just mentioned, the arms armaments, but, um, I don't necessarily see humor maybe some whimsy in in the toxicon you know but not humor but but I don't know I just wanted to throw that out there what are your thoughts on cuz you first of all you you obviously have kind of a little bit of a tongue in cheek sense of humor with some of these series sure. um do you feel like any of that's present in, in Toxicon or any of your other series or what are your thoughts on that?
1: It's always kind of there to a degree. So I would say in Toxicon, the humor might be more present in the in some of the coloration. It might be there in the ridiculousness of this large drip just sitting there suspended <laughs> in frozen time. Yeah, uh, sure. There's always like an underlying element of humor, which is not necessarily something that I look for. It just comes out that way. Yeah. And I've been hearing references of underlying humor going back to some of my darkest, I think, Thought nastiest work, so that said, it's it's, uh, it's 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 always sort of present a little bit, um, not in everything, but it does come out um, in the in the arms and armament group that you're referring to. Those were also from my Smithsonian residency, okay. as I referenced earlier, and I did go through a period of being very preoccupied with the utter contradictions of American military might. And the fact that we um, not only produce more arms and armaments than any, any country in the world, they are a major part of how we do business with other countries. You know, we will yeah. build your infrastructure, but you also we have to buy our weapons as well. So I right. found utter utter hypocrisy in that. And my time at the Smithsonian was all about trying to explore that a little bit. Um, that said, it was a short-lived series of a couple of years, maybe probably I was doing my residency. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of uh, lost interest in it after a while for a couple of different reasons. I am particularly fond of the p c reference which is the the um the 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 airplanes suspended in sort of an animated copulation it's actually that particular piece was very very interesting for me because what it is it 's actually the it 's the Enola gay it 's the b twenty nine that dropped the first uh the first uh the first the first bomb so um, basically I bought a model of a model of one i didn 't know really how to atta- how to how to approach that because the the plane itself, which is at the Smithsonian, is so large, I thought reproducing a little section. I didn't really know what to do with that. Right. So when it occurred to me to buy a model of it. I didn't expect that it was going to come with a little two-scale model of Fatboy with it, you know, sort of, which it did. Wow. So it became like, well, this is interesting. So I basically made a mold, cast several versions of it, and one piece did not seem like enough. So another one got piled on top. And then another one got piled on top of that, and another one got piled on top of that, and it does sort of like have a phallic reference uh, about it, which all, the way all military, uh, uh, all military stuff does. Yeah, there's almost uh, you could find sexual implications to not just military objects themselves, but also the, in um, particularly the uh, the World War II era, what's called nose art, uh, which is what Felix the Felix the Cat with bomb comes from. Yeah. By the way, that's an official. Uh, United States Army Air Force, the uh, U.S. Air Force uh, logo that is still on aircraft today. Um, all, <laughs> that, all of that stuff, that sort of like uh, misogynistic stuff from World War II, you know, uh, pinup girls riding bombs, all that stuff has yeah. been obviously outlawed and has when, when been gone for quite some time. Felix with bomb remains. Um, and I, for a while, actually did a series of drawings, not on my website yet, where I designed my own nose art.
0: Wow. Okay, well that f- f- first of all the Felix the Cat being an official <laughs> <laughs> I, I I'm just I was actually looking up the creator of Felix the Cat who died before World War 2. Uh,
1: Felix was actually the first cartoon uh, ever.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, first cartoon, You mean the yes. first animated
1: cartoon? First animated cartoon, yes, ever.
0: Oh, okay. I man. actually I had,
1: to, I had to do my 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 cartoon homework for a while in the <laughs> middle of my Smithsonian residency.
0: Yeah, that just makes me wonder like uh, how what the, what the path was to that to to the military, I don't know, licensing that or appropriating that with this with the the, the creator is named Pat Sullivan. Um, boy, that could be a whole other conversation. Uh, how that happened?
1: Also, I, I, as far as I know, Mr. Sullivan was, was not even American; he was Australian. Uh, so the, I yeah, could be wrong. I know oh, you're right. He was okay. born in Australia. Okay, good. I'm yeah. g- glad I'm, I'm correct on that one. Uh, I know that Disney certainly did a lot of a lot of the um, uh, early World War II nose arts as well, uh, but a lot of them were done by members of bomber crews. You know, somebody, somebody sure. who felt, felt like they were adept at uh, drawing. You know, give them some paints and go at it.
0: Yeah, yeah, wow.
1: And it was a fascinating period, but I, I found that I outgrew it fairly quickly. Yeah, um, I it for uh, different differing reasons. There is maybe there was uh, a little bit too much uh, tr- uh, uh, r- reality to them. I needed to. I wanted to go back to uh, something a little bit uh, less heavy handed.
0: Okay. Now you had mentioned uh, people find humor even in your in, even in what you consider to be your absolute darkest right. pieces. So. so do you touch on like, in, as far as you're concerned, what are what are some of these super dark pieces that people are finding? So, Tyler, finding?
1: if you if you have my site there, go to I believe it's called um, um, uh, is it um, objects uh, objects
0: compound machines. Yeah,
1: try that. Try that group. And you're mm-hmm. looking for my earlier work that is all predominantly rust.
0: Yeah, these are, these are very, uh, yeah, there's like a giant, well, I, and I, I've seen you, you standing in front of this one with a, it's, it's, it's like a vault almost right. with a huge wheel door that's all rusted out, pockmarked with, with what looks like rust and decay. Yeah. And those are very dystopian. Looking.
1: So, and that and the dystopian was more interesting to me than 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 referencing anything that I thought was funny at all. Right. Um, so, uh, and the reason I found it um, I found it particularly remarkable with that particular group is there was a review in the New York Times by which the writer. Um, identified a particular aspect of one particular piece and said, "This is a this is a Detroit joke. This is a oh. joke on Detroit. Like I was poking fun at my dystopian uh, former, you know, my my city of my birth." And I, I thought I didn't really see it. I didn't really agree with her. I didn't see it as a joke at all. I thought it was damn serious. Do you
0: remember what piece that was?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a wall work um, called um, Static Fuel Number Four. Okay. And if you can find it, it's in there. And it, uh, there's a red wrench at it that was completely sort of absurd, kind of like obviously not, uh, not based on anything literal. And and the writer referred to that as the Detroit joke.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, um, oh, I think I, I think I see what you're talking about. Yeah.
1: I didn't necessarily find much humor in that particular body of work, and that right. was a group that went on for a number of years, but I did hear that from outside sources, that they saw them as being as, as, as funny. And yeah. they might have been referring to the fact that they're so illogical, right. that if, you, if you're a motorhead and look at any one of my early engines, you can probably tell this guy doesn't know anything about motors at all. So that said, there, there's a little bit of humor involved in that.
0: Um, I gotta ask, like, so what, have gearheads who, or they look at this and they're like, "Oh, this this dude doesn't know anything <laughs> about machinery." Do they? Have you ever had weird reactions from people, like motor, you know, like real technical or motor, you know, motorhead type people who are just like how can how dare you you, you. <laughs>
1: i've never had an i dare you but i have had a few um this is interesting but i can tell you don't know anything about about um, automotive anything so that said it's i'm i'm happy to have that pointed out in general they're not my favorite audience because they know too much you know i'm more inclined to be uh, to look at somebody who's who's going to take this at face value as being my my intended audience
0: well, you know, I, I looking at this series, uh, the the objects, compound machines, it's almost, you know, to me, kind of steampunk. You know, I, I, I'm sure you've heard that, too. Um, because some of these look almost sci-fi, like they could be out of a Star Wars film.
1: Sci-fi is a, a reference that I like and still like. Uh, When I first heard steampunk and first started realizing there was a whole genre of that out there, it probably had a lot to do with me kind of stopping that particular way of approaching my (laughs) work. Yeah. So I did not want to look like a collection of found object and junk parts, which is pretty much what steampunk looked like at the time. Uh, By the way, I have not kept on top of the steampunk movement. Is that still going on? I kind of don't know. That's, are, you know,
0: I don't know. And, you know, steampunk uh, from my understanding of it, and, I mean, it, it, it extends into so many right. facets. Right. Like it's also right. fashion right. too, right. you know, like these weird mashups of like Victorian clothing with like, you know, hyper modern, you know, accessories and things like that. Um, I'm sure it's still going strong I'm as sure, a subculture sure somewhere and evolving in, in its own ways. But um, yeah, I mean, I could see why people might say that about sure. this work um, because there there's like weird dials and and, <laughs> and like buttons to the kind of look yep. like they, they might be, you know, have been taken off of a spaceship or something, you know, but maybe but also like that's why I thought about like like the classic Star Wars because some of these look like pieces that were, you know, like. In the machinery and like the original, Star I've got, Wars
1: I get films. Blade Runner references oh, pretty regularly. Oh, of course. yeah. So yeah. Um, again, dystopian, uh, about as dystopian as you can get, Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those references do come up, but I really did make an effort to distance to distance myself from the, the appearance of found object. Um, and I'm sure that the the Toxicon Group emerged probably somewhere in that tra- in that transition. If yeah. let's go from static, which is what most of the early objects are, to to uh, to fluid, literally. So it's it's that transition has been a fun one to make over the last several years.
0: Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, so as I said, I wanted to circle back uh, um, before we wrap this up uh, to your drawings because something about these drawings really, uh, and and I know that uh, you you had addressed this earlier, but but they're 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 sort of fundamental to kind of the overall themes that you're, that you're working with. And, and many of them, um, reference the biohazard symbol I've noticed. Sure. Um, which makes sense. But the ones that really jumped out at me as unusual are these feathers. You have this purple feathers. Number one, this is, these are, these are quite old now. They're 2004 to 2007, but they're watercolor. And, uh, the title is purple feathers. Number one for gifts, Barters, coerters.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've forgotten I included that in that description. That's actually an, an honest description, though, because they're the only things, probably the only work in my site that was not made with a fine art intention. Like literally – I literally began making them as gifts for the holidays. Um, Also indulging in some of my, you know, what I believe to be substantial, you know, chops and sort of enjoying getting down there with uh, ballpoint and watercolor and drawing. It started off off as a single feather. Then it evolved into groups of feathers. Then there was an invitation by a very influential fabric designer who's now recently passed away. His name is Jack Leonard Larson to think about developing these as fabric. And I thought, well, there's an interesting tangent, but it was definitely a tangent. So the fact that my brain can shift from my, at the time, steampunk, you know, ceramic sculptures and also sit down and carefully draft um, a composition of very delicate feathers is just simply, a, you know, an aspect of my probably uh, neurotic self
0: now so, but you you you've always pretty much worked from a you've taken a sculptural approach and you've worked in ceramics but you, but you obviously you 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 have an acumen with sure. you know with watercolor, which is difficult can be difficult to work with i mean these these look like skilled drawings um so when you were you know in training as an artist um like what and i and i do think that we touched on this a little bit in our original interview, but um you it sounds like you you did pretty much jump right into. Ceramics and sculpture, but you ha- you also have this element of of the the uh, of the, the drawings and, and using watercolors. Well,
1: certainly as a kid, I began with drawing and painting. That was all that was available, and I also okay. come from a family that where art was not present. Art was not part of our family dynamic in any way. There was no aunt, uncle, nobody. It was basically just me and my private little world. So that was a drawing and painting world. And um, uh, it wasn't until high school that I actually saw a piece of clay. I'd never seen clay in my my life. It it was just not. It was not part of our world. Uh, So – and then in college, I think I probably got more serious about it. But it was always – uh drawing and painting and particularly in college I was also very serious about printmaking, and so etching had a bit of kind of a craft you know a sculpture uh, overlap to it there was a lot right. of scraping and cutting and stuff going on there and I was very uh, torn about which direction to go in d- two dimensional or three it's kind of a decision that a lot of artists uh, play with and some manage to do both um I simply have had a, you know, a little bit more, you know, I've had more success with ceramic, but part of me still thinks of myself as a painter. And let's consider that all the work that we're looking at here today, drawings excluded, of course, are all basically, there's the only glaze that I use is that metallic luster glaze, both the gold and the platinum. Mm. They're all oil painted. Right. So I take my (laughs) approach to oil paint and my knowledge of oil paint very, very seriously. The painting of the objects is sometimes as complicated as the making of of the object itself. Later so it's a, it's a very very serious uh, layered process that sometimes right. go on for quite a while, and uh, and I I'm a, a regular, you know I'm plying through different you know approaches to painting, uh, to the extent that some people say Steve, why don't you just paint, so that gets into the realm of. Yeah, but flatness just doesn't really, for me, appeal. Yeah. You know, it doesn't feel physical enough. It doesn't feel real world enough. Right. It feels like it's an illusion. It fades back into a reality that is just not uh, not terribly interesting to me. Um, uh, real space sculpture uh, just simply has a, an element of confrontation about it that is far more appealing.
0: Element of confrontation, I like that. Right. But then, yes, um, the, the the focus on the oil, with um, the painting of the, of the surfaces is, is really important because because you're going for those very kind of beautifully toxic-looking shades. It's very unnatural, but they're still kind of, you know, right. weirdly gorgeous to look at.
1: And I some think. of that is just, you know, discoveries made by the application of the particular kind of paint that I use, which is a handmade oil paint. Yeah. Uh, I've been using the same paint for, you know, many, many years. Wow. It's called Williamsburg Oil Paint. You know, a little trick for everybody. It's a remarkable, remarkable series. And it um, – it um, um, You know, after my rust period, it made sense to try to experiment with color more because I was working with oil point. Why not see what else we can do here? And it's just remarkable, um, how much for me the the painting is almost the the most fun. It's like the dessert after the physical (laughs) labor. Of yeah. sculpture, the painting of them was just pure, pure fun, pure joy, absolute, absolutely. Uh, you know, I can change color. I can, right. I can literally transform them any way that I want. It's kind of
0: like the like the frosting on the on a cake.
1: Exactly, yeah. good way, perfect analogy, perfect <laughs> analogy.
0: Well, and then also when you were talking about this, how your kind of entry, in, you know, into art was you know painting and drawing, but you you did have this period as a kid where you were kind of doing installations <laughs> like. Maybe, you know, like this is sort of like seemed to lay the, the groundwork because you were, you know, you were, um, you know, making models of cars, planes and ships, you know, and then and then, you know, arranging them into scenes and then, you know, blowing them up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so, I'm, so. I'm, I'm I'm guessing that the, that certainly the the uh, the uh, the foundation was certainly laid with that kind of an activity. At no point did I think of those as as artworks at all. I was simply just sure, sure. You know, having fun as a little kid, you know, doing my thing. Model making was very popular in my family. I would say that was one right. creative endeavor that I, I shouldn't deny that that uh, that was not a not of serious influence. Is all of my siblings, almost all of my siblings, were involved in model making in some degree, and as a kid, I would probably. Put you know crank out one model per week you know so there's a lot of models around our hearts. the usual predictable stuff that you'd expect little boys sure. to be into um, you know so the very predictable stuff
0: yeah yeah you know that's interesting because model making I feel like also that that's a generational thing that was a really big deal you know probably when you were growing up it's, like it's that a, way,
1: surprisingly it's still, it's still it's still it's still being done
0: sure
1: um, I don't hear of it as much as I used to certainly so I'm saying it is probably a little bit generational but the same company that I bought models from as a kid is still in operation today. They're now owned by a German. They're owned, I think they're owned by a German uh, entity. Uh, but that said, you can still get the same models today from the same company that I bought them from as a kid. So somebody out there is making models. Uh, there's a couple of model shops here in New York, but not many. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of a rarefied world. Uh, That's surprising. As 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 many models as we made, it seemed like it was about quantity back then. Uh, yeah. So there was a lot around. I did not stop and paint them elaborately. I did not take them nearly as far enough. I mean, as an artist, for me to go back and critique my models as kids it seems kind of ridiculous. But at the same time, we could have taken them much much farther, and uh, you know painted them elaborately. We kind of did not. We kind of moved on and made made another one as quickly as possible.
0: Well, it does sound like it it, it did kind of like help in, in certain in terms of like training you just so for mm-hmm. the, me- the meticulousness of it you know the you know the the uh, attention to detail even though you say you didn't take them as far as you could have right. i think that that probably Maybe subconsciously, kind of laid that groundwork as well. For
1: I know that I was very concerned and very upset if any glue oozed out of a seam. So a little bit of uh, a little <laughs> bit of perfectionism was in play at that time. I also was thoroughly <laughs> delighted to see them go up in flames. So it's it it, uh, it the you know all those all those factors were in play. Wow! So, there. but
0: you were upset to see glue oozing, but now you're trying to create oozing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but that makes sense.
0: It's almost like maybe, maybe on a deeper level, you're, you're you're trying to you know work that out. Like you were upset over the oozy. Now I'm just going to make it. I'm going to I'm going to own the ooze. I don't know,
1: <laughs> Child, I'm going to quote you on that.
0: Go for it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's see. Uh, so we 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 touched on. I want. I, yeah, I just wanted to get a little, little bit deeper into those drawings because they they did jump out of me as as just so different from a lot of a lot of your work. Um, let's talk about where you're showing work right now what's coming up um you had mentioned that uh well to me before we started recording toxicon was going to go up at uh plaxel gallery it was shown there it was it shown was okay shown all right um and that was in Fev- february 2020 so they, they weren't up for very long it sounds like before
1: uh, no, actually I actually had to rescue it in the middle of the pandemic. It was an incredible oh. exhibition, and that was going to be the launch of the series. Oh. Um, and then probably we were in lockdown, what, four weeks later here in New York? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, uh, it, the show kind of didn't get the mileage that it probably could have. Uh, so uh, that said, it was also during the lockdown period, I think, as we and I discussed in our first interview, that the Euclidean group began. And so now I'm kind of back and forth, going back but literally in the same day from one to the other. And the, 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 the smaller work being infinitely more manageable on a physical level has given them a sort of an audience that uh, has, its own, has its own kind of direction. So there's a lot of those on exhibit. There's one at a museum in Geneva right now. One of them has just been acquired by the National Museum of Sweden. There's works at a variety of locations, including still at C24 Gallery. So there's a, right. a lot of yeah. movement with them. That said, my heart is still on some level. I, I hate to take preference over one over one over the others like saying i like one child better than the other but my heart is still with the toxicon group i think they're the best work i've ever done um and they um they they still keep me in the, that part that really enjoys the theatricality of large scale yeah and they've got they do have a confrontational physical presence that for me is still very very exciting
0: yeah, you know, so going back to this theatricality, which I love, because you you've, you've mentioned it a few times now, and 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 sort of the confrontational aspect of it, do you do you foresee going even bigger, doing something like on an outdoor, like a giant scale, like almost statue level, you know, like something multi-story that is? Uh, actually,
1: you know. <laughs> I actually have several applications in progress for exactly that. Okay, so we'll see right. where it goes. If I was to look at my current – the current size that they're at now and look at that as merely a model. Um, I think we're looking at fabrication and probably another medium like obviously steel uh, or bronze, take your pick, um, if they were to go to that kind of a public art scale. Um, it has been suggested that they would function very well in a, pu- in a public art uh, context. Yeah. Um, I can certainly see that. So that's really another direction they could possibly take.
0: That's exciting. Yeah, yeah I'm excited yeah. about that. And they, and they could also be directly interactive with people in, in a way that almost, you know, would you do something that people could even climb on or? Go upstairs on. That
1: would really be an option too. Um, uh, right now, they're, they have an appearance of being insanely fragile, which they're not. They're actually quite strong. But when they were displayed at, at, at the Plaxol exhibition, we had to build a little sort of a gate around, kind of a fenced off area to prevent people from coming up and wanting to grab on and, and you know, literally have have a child climb up on would not go well. Um, so, but that said, they are they are uh, they're they're probably about as big as they want to get in the ceramic scale. Um, beyond that, the public art possibility is an is an interesting option.
0: A thought just came to my, my mind when you mentioned, you know, well, you know, you wouldn't want a child colony around of you know. I think it would be, I think it'd be fascinating to see your take on like playground equipment, <laughs> doing some <laughs> kind of like, you know, like very scary looking but still usable uh, you know uh, whatever
1: uh, it's interesting you, know, that you would reference
0: slides that. and things like that it's yeah.
1: interesting you would yeah. reference that Tyler because a couple people have asked about what is my what is my concept of color for this particular group of work they've got sort of an element of bright colors about them and one of my favorite references is abandoned um, abandoned amusement parks uh, the most the oh, scariest yeah, of which that. is in uh, Chernobyl of all places so that said <laughs> okay. you know subway the way subways are painted in New York City, Um, you know, kind of random bright, so maybe a worker can find a a valve in the middle of the night. I'm not really sure what the aesthetic choices are there. I think it's probably whatever's in their warehouse at the time. But that said, there is a kind of, um, if you see a standpipe on any building in New York City, there'll always be colored in a manner that they're very clearly and readily identifiable. Right. There's probably a real purpose to that. I have not really found the engineer or the city worker who can answer that question for me. I think it's about something as specific as uh, um, um, identifiable. You know, where's valve number one versus valve number two? This is the kind of stuff that I look at.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. So
1: for me, going to a museum to look at art is always an incredible thing to do. Direct inspiration comes from crap I see on the street.
0: <laughs> Which makes sense. And then of course in New York, you're in a, you know, perfect place for that. And just in the subway system itself, you already have this like kind of beautiful corrosion happening naturally everywhere, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like dripping, you know, (laughs) rusting pipes and yeah it's got to be just a gold of inspiration for you daily
1: the, the the movies in New York was incredible, and the subways were immediately an extraordinary source of inspiration. I was actually one of the few people who was dismayed when they all got round faded. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, yeah, you're not a fan of like the, uh, the, the, the somewhat shiny or newer stations. <laughs> I
1: mean, certainly they, they, they have their appeal and we all appreciate, you know, things cleaner on a certain level. Yeah. Um, um, I like definitely, definitely enjoy a lot of dark to my pretty. So that said, it is, it's, um, uh, I, 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 I make sure I include that in my work at any opportunity.
0: So uh, let's just touch on um, what's coming up with you in terms of where you're showing um, things coming up. Anything you want to talk about or would like people to know about?
1: Sure. Um, If anybody's in Geneva, that piece is up there uh, Mm -hmm. through December. Um, I am looking forward to the the National Museum of Sweden uh, event. That's an exhibition that opens in, I believe, the end of February or March. I kind of don't remember the exact dates right now. Uh, but that 's a, a obviously a major event coming up that 's an actual uh not just a museum acquisition but it 's actually an exhibition that we'll be opening okay. um, sometime this spring
0: okay all right yeah i 'll check in with you after we're after we 're finished here and i can uh put up links to those on the page okay. for the podcast okay. as well. people are curious all right well, I think we, we covered like kind of the broad you you know you 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 have so much variety of work and there's a lot of things that we could touch on, but I think we we kind of got into like the 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 gist, the core of like you know thematically and you know and elementally what you're what you're going for. So thanks for listening. Um, you can check us out at interlocutorinterviews.com. And again, if you'd like to support our efforts for high quality arts and culture coverage, you can do so via Patreon. Just click on the Patreon link on the site. It's interlocutorinterviews.com. And uh, thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with another interlocutor interview episode. Also look for updates on our site and also Instagram. It's at interlocutor.interviews. And thank you very much again, Stephen, for joining
1: us. Tyler, thank you. Pleasure to be here.